When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. A great story cannot be stopped. The gospel will not be stopped. And God invites us to participate with his people in telling the great, great story. It's not just a great story. It is the greatest story ever told. And it was told in an epic film that was released in perhaps the second most notable thing that happened in 1965. That's the year I was born. Since then, many other depictions of the story of Jesus have been made, but the cast of this version sets itself away from many of the other depictions of the story of Jesus. See how many of these stars you recognize. Behold! I send my messenger who shall prepare the way. Listen to the voice of one crying in the wilderness, one whose sandals I am worthy to carry. Who are you? Baptize me, John. What is your name, my friend? James. Little James. They call me Little because I'm the youngest. What is your name? Jesus. That's a good name. Thank you. You have judged her rightly. She is guilty of adultery. The law called for her to be stoned. Yes. Let him among you who is without sin cast the first stone. Lazarus.
I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. Lazarus was dead. He's alive. Well, it's a three-hour movie, and uh, even with Daylight Savings Time, I don't want to fill the whole time with the greatest story ever told. But I do encourage uh, many of you to um, watch it as a family and discuss. And um, a good question to ask your children after watching this uh, portrayal is, how are the characters similar and different from your imagination after reading the Bible story? It's important that we read the book itself, and then we uh, critically judge what we see. This is indeed a great story, but there are barriers to this story going forth. There are barriers to people hearing the greatest story ever told. There was a lesser-known film uh, released in 1983 a low-budget film called The Greatest Story Never Told, not to be confused with the documentary on Hitler by the same title. But in the movie that I'm thinking of, a preacher's son hears visiting missionaries speak on the challenges, and he realizes he doesn't have to go to the jungle to preach the gospel. He can take it across the street. And whether you are called to remote jungles or the vast spaces of the open range of Chase County, Acts 27 and 28 uh, details for us three challenges that Paul faced before he was permitted to proclaim the good news, the gospel in Rome. The first obstacle is that the spread of the gospel must overcome impediments. Now, I realize that we have a limited attention span, so I didn't want to read both of these chapters in one stretch. But, since it may have been a week or two since you read Acts 27, I think it would be worth our time to hear what is actually in these accounts. We'll start with the first 20 verses of Acts 27, then I will make a few comments about that, then we'll look at the rest of chapter 27, and I'll make a few comments about that. But I encourage you, open your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 27, verse 1, where we read, Acts 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. 
Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since we were violently storm-tossed. Over the last 150 years, that is, since the Industrial Revolution, one of the most ardent opponents to faith has been naturalism. Naturalism is a claim that there is no supernatural, but all we have is what's right here. And we must make the most out of what we have in front of us. Man has begun to search for human explanations to phenomena that used to be attributed to the supernatural. Since the Industrial Revolution, the men, the women, the teenagers that we are discussing with have begun to overestimate their own ability to overcome circumstances. Oliver and Wilbur Wright overcame gravity in 1903. And some of us are still trying to overcome gravity. Spring of 1912 saw the launch of the transatlantic, the unsinkable Titanic. Summer of 1925, the Scopes Monkey Trial began in Tennessee. And it brought the conflict between creation by God and naturalistic evolution, (coughs) excuse me, to a climax. Man has become natural where we try to figure out what we can do to control what is larger than us. See, today it seems like man would rather take a risk on the uncertainty of his own abilities than listen to a sure word from God. Did you notice verse 12 of chapter 27? They took off in the boat 
on the chance that somehow they would get to their destination. On the chance that somehow, sure sounds like faith to me, but they place their faith in their own abilities, not in the sure word from God. Rather than accept the simple gospel of faith in the finished work of Christ, too many people today reject the gospel in favor of their own goodness or some sort of cosmic karma. I'll just keep living my life and on the chance that somehow I will make it to a good place after death. Rather than take the sure word that is proclaimed in the word of God. See, man's ability to work himself into a bad situation is then illustrated in the next 24 verses where there is shipwreck. When hope was gone because of the storms, they began to psychologically prepare for the worst. And we see that beginning in verse 21. They had been without food for a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, 
and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So while man thought he could safely navigate the storm, they found themselves in a shipwreck, and from the shipwreck, they then began to despair. So I would say the first obstacle to the gospel was a philosophical one. Why does God allow good things or bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow storms? Once we conclude that God may allow storms for a purpose, the second challenge to the gospel spreading is that of psychology. The men had despair, and their despair prompted them to sometimes make poor decisions. Despair makes people do unreasonable things. Fear can paralyze. Notice verse 29. Fear prompted them to drop the anchors and to just float. We can't do anything more. Let's just float. Fear can lead to pretense or to deception. Some of the soldiers began to come up with a plan of mutiny. We will escape in the life raft. Now, we don't know if they made it to the life raft before the centurion cut the cords or if he cut the cords before they could make it to the life raft. Either way, we never hear again of those who were in such despair that they tried to leave the ship. Fear can paralyze. Fear can lead to pretense. Fear can steal appetites. Look at verse 33. For 14 days they had not eaten because they were so emotionally despairing of what the future may hold. But those who stayed with the ship until it ran aground, just as Paul said, Paul said in verse 34 in the second part, stay with the ship. Because those who did listen to what Paul said, because those who did listen to the word from the Lord, all of them were brought safely to the land in verse 44. See, mankind frequently gets himself into a jam by overestimating his own abilities. And then when we get ourselves into a jam because we overestimate our abilities, then fear often wins the battle over faith. How do I get out of the predicament? And oftentimes, fear is so paralyzing, they are unable or unwilling to extend faith. But when faith is practiced, when we do what the sure word of God says, then God's will is always accomplished. So we saw there at the end of verse 44 that all of them are safely on the land. Some, it was close enough for them to swim. Others grabbed onto planks of the ship and the current brought them in but they all made it safely, just as Paul had said. 
They were all safely on the land, but snakes, superstitions, and sickness are about to reveal to them the power of God. Acts 28 After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Wow, what a great story. Storms, shipwreck, snakes, miraculous healings. I, I, I called this snakes and sickness, but as I thought about it yesterday, it's also snakes, superstition, and sickness that are all challenged by the might of God. Because we see here that a snake strikes at Paul, and they assume because this snake has attached to Paul's hand, he must be a murderer. Now, I don't know how they came to that conclusion other than it was some form of superstition. But he simply shook his hand, snake fell, and he never did swell up. He, he actually survives the snake bite, and because he survives, he then, they conclude, he, well, he wasn't a murderer, he must be a messenger from beyond. And they treated him as if he was some divine agent to communicate to him. But he says, I am but a man. And then he prays for the people, the chief, as well as all of the sick of the island, and they are mended. He went somehow within just 10 verses from being a murderer to one who is mending their illnesses. Oftentimes, we are called to take the gospel to people who are not searching for it. The people on the island of Malta were not searching for the gospel. However, God brought a messenger to the people, and because the messenger was faithful, God demonstrated his might and his power and his ability to resolve their problems even though they weren't looking for him. And the lesson for us is that ordinary situations can be the opportunity for us to reach people who don't know what they are missing. People who don't know that they are looking for God 
Yet there's an opportunity if we, like Paul, go where God sends us and are faithful to tell the message, God's power will be demonstrated. See, often the arrogance of thinking somehow we're going to get where we want to go or the despair of we're dying anyway, we might as well cut the boat anchors or the ignorance of I, I, I don't know who you are or what you are. I, I just don't know. Often the arrogance, the despair, and the ignorance are the traits of those who are far from God. And to those who are in a lost condition, far from God, the end of Acts shows us that the presence of the gospel provides both hope and understanding. Paul arrives in Rome, as he had been told he would in a dream, and there is no record that he ever gets to present his case to Caesar. Paul was told he would go to Rome, and he thought he was going to Rome to appeal his case. But actually, he was going to Rome to proclaim the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Paul is permitted then to live outside of jail with a soldier to protect him. As he is living under house arrest, he begins to speak of the hope of Israel. As has been the custom ever since Jerusalem, the gospel is first offered to the Jews and those who had the scriptures and started from a monotheistic worldview in verse 17 of chapter 28. Paul offered the gospel to his own people, those who already agreed that there was but one God. And Paul, as he is telling the story to his own people, he begins with his own testimony. And the message for us today is that oftentimes, telling your own story is the best way to start a dialogue rather than to point a finger. Rather than to say, this is your sin, and this is where you are guilty, and this is where you have offended God, and this is why you will spend eternity in hell, instead of starting with that, which is all true and needs to eventually be communicated, start with the story. Paul says, this is what happened to me to bring me here. And then once he earned the right to talk to the people... He says, you know, I am here to talk about what you have been hoping for. Because Israel possessed a couple of different hopes. And I believe when this talks about these chains are the hope of Israel, it's actually a double or maybe a triple entendre. Because what I see happening there is that for many who were in leadership in Israel, their hope was for power. They were no longer hoping for the Messiah. They were simply hoping to be in power over those Romans. And the hope of Israel was a Roman conflict. And Paul says, it's actually your hope for power that has put me here. Secondly, the second entendre of the hope of Israel was Paul's hope for Israel. 
See, while the hope of many in Israel was power, Paul says, my hope for my own people is that you would hear the gospel. My hope of Israel is that these chains that brought me here caused the Roman government to pay all of the expenses to bring me to Rome so that I could tell you of the Christ who is truly the hope of Israel, truly the Messiah that our people have longed for for generations. And sometimes God is just wise enough and powerful enough to cause your employer to put you in places where you can testify. Sometimes the government may even put you in places where you can testify. Sometimes the government even paid for our equipment to be able to live stream during COVID. And if we look for opportunity, sometimes God is at work to provide opportunity for us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a nephew who is currently a sailor in the U.S. Navy. When he is on ship or when he is on base, he must be solely focused on his job within the military. But military service also has provided leave opportunities throughout the Pacific. And I have heard great reports from both Navy and Army personnel of chances to talk about Christ around the globe and their travel is paid for by our government. I've also heard of business travelers who leverage their off hours for the Lord's purpose. I just saw a tweet on Twitter, a tweet on Twitter, this morning, no, Lee Strobel is not a twit. He's a, he tweeted on Twitter, and Lee Strobel, that many of you know, is the author of the book, A Case for Christ, A, Christ, a Case for the Resurrection, A Case for Hope. He just tweeted everybody, he says, I'm at this gate in this airport, and there's a frozen custard stand across the way. If any of you want to come, custard is on me. Even if you're a skeptic, even if you deny, you come and we'll talk. So here was a man that his, his employer had put him in a situation. He says, now that I'm here, I'm going to look for an opportunity to speak of Christ. Even if you disagree with me, come, let's talk about it. And I believe Paul's hope for Israel was that the gospel would spread. Israel's current hope put Paul in the chains But Paul saw the chains as an opportunity to live out his hope for Israel, that Israel would find Christ as the true reason of hope. And then verse 27 of chapter 28 talks about those who gain understanding with the heart. Verse 23 tells that Paul spent the day in the scriptures. His testimony intrigued them, But once they agreed to listen to him, he went to the word of God. And we can tell our story, but we've got to get to the word of God as well. Verse 24 speaks of mixed results. Some people believed, others disbelieved. But Paul doesn't seem to consider those who disbelieved a failure or a waste of time. 
Because he admits that belief is a work of the Holy Spirit who calls individuals in such a way that they are able to respond. And verse 26 sends us to tell. Even if they don't respond, we are sent to tell. Because verse 27 says that those who do understand, those who understand with the heart will turn from sin and be healed from their sin. I know what it's like to get brushed off by people who are not interested in what I have to share about the gospel. Some people brush off politely. Others can be quite rude. I know what it is like to give my whole story and people still refuse to accept it, as Agrippa did in chapter 26. But I also know what it is like to explain the beauty of the gospel, even with my limited ability with words, to explain the beauty of Christ and to see the Spirit of God mightily call a sinner to repentance. Not all of my results have been positive from the human standpoint, but every time I have proclaimed out of obedience, and sometimes I've been embarrassed and I've been quiet and and I was wrong. But every time I tell when prompted by God's Spirit, whether the other person receives or not, it's a win. And you, whenever you tell of the gospel to somebody else, it's a win, whether they accept or not. Because we are commissioned to evangelize everyone, everywhere, starting here. Some will ignore, some will indulge us, and some will be healed and forgiven by the mighty power of God. Paul's hope, as it related to his country, is that they would find the hope in the gospel. I wonder, is that your hope for our country? Do you believe that it is within God's might and God's power to call people to repentance and to healing? If we do, let's stand together as we remind ourselves of God's great power to save others. Our final hymn this morning, 